Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Jesus, we thank you and praise you for the opportunity to gather, to open your word, to hold it in our laps, Lord, to take a moment and allow it to change our lives. And so I pray for this congregation, I pray that we together would remain undistracted, Lord, that you would protect us from hurt, harm, and danger uh, uh, physically, but also emotionally and spiritually in this next hour. God, that our hearts would be centered and focused on you and you alone, that nothing would distract us from that. I pray, God, that you would use my words to minister to hearts, Lord, that all of us would see that there's room for us to love you even more. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray you would help me to rightly divide your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We did start John chapter 10 last week, and Jesus... There at the Feast of Tabernacles, chapter 8, chapter 9, he's, he's got this great discourse going on, and he kind of turns uh, uh, his attention to, at the beginning of John chapter 10, this relationship that we described last week, the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. And like I said, for you and I, not many of us here have owned sheep in our lives, and so we're not really experienced in being a shepherd or what exactly that means. And so I took a lengthy time last week to explain what that relationship is and how our shepherd literally lived for and cared for the sheep, the instruments that he had, the the sheep folds that they used, how he um, would lay down his life for the sheep and how he would, that was his primary care and responsibility. We saw in in verse 10 last week, the, the great verse, probably you've got it underlined in your Bible. If not, you should. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He he gives us a discourse, or he shows us a difference rather between the thief and, and himself and what he has come to do, and that is to give us life. And we said, of course, that means life eternal. That's what he promised us back in the, 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 the gospel in John 3.16. He so loved the world that he gave his life that none should perish, that all would have eternal life. But it means more than just that moment we pass from this life into that eternal life. Eternal life begins at the moment of salvation. And so, yes, it means a life of eternity with Him, but also that He gives us life, He gives us joy, He gives us peace now in this life as well. The thief comes to destroy. Jesus comes that he would that we would have life. And then we finish with verse 11. I'm going to read it again. And Jesus states plainly what this analogy that he's using, what he means by it, because they weren't getting it. They understood the whole sheep shepherd thing, but they weren't understanding what Jesus was trying to say. So he says in verse 11, where we'll pick up today, I am, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And that is the role of a shepherd. That's, that's what a good shepherd would do. He's saying he is the good shepherd. This is what he does. He knows now, now we're about five months out from the cross in the story, in the timeline of John. We're about five months out and he knows what's coming. This is not a surprise to him. They, the, the Jews don't suddenly take him by storm and all of a sudden, oh, they've got me. I guess I'm going to the cross. He understands what this is about. He understands that his life is a sacrifice. And so he says, 
I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life. You'll recall last week, he said, I am the door. And how that, that played into the sheepfold idea. When they were out to pasture, when the sheep were out to pasture, the, the sheepfold they would use where they would keep the sheep at night was made out of brambles and bushes. They would circle it around uh, on the major, on three sides for sure, and even on the fourth side to some degree to keep the sheep in at night. And then the shepherd literally would become the door of the sheepfold. He would lay down in between the sheep and what was outside. He would become the door. And so Jesus is saying, I am that door. I'm the one that stands between the sheep and the world, the sheep and the wolves, literally. He is here to defend his sheep. Jesus will give his life for the sheep. So now we head into verse 12, new material for this week, and he's going to look at the difference between a shepherd now and a hireling. And we're going to compare and contrast those. So verse 12, new material. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care for the sheep. All right, and so he introduces now this idea of a hireling. Well, what is it? It sounds just like the word. It's someone that was hired in order to care for and protect the sheep. Very often in those days, if you were a shepherd, the reason you were a shepherd is because you owned sheep. And if you owned sheep, then you became a shepherd and you cared for your flock. And sometimes the shepherd would, as they grew older, they would pass the shepherding part on to their son. And then their son would become a shepherd and care for his father's sheep. We see that in the life of David, right? When David, when, when Samuel goes out to exalt or anoint the new king, Saul is, is no longer the king. Of, of Israel, he goes to the family of Jesse. Jesse brings his sons before him and, and they pass by Samuel. And Samuel's like, nope, he's not the one. Nope, he's not the one. Nope, you know, he's the best looking of the bunch, but he's not the one. And he goes through all of Jesse's sons and, 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 and God doesn't say, yeah, that's the one. And so finally he asks Jesse, Samuel asks Jesse and he says, do you, do you have any other sons? And he's like, well, um, Oh yeah, I do. Uh, there's one more. Uh, he's out tending the sheep. Of course, speaking of David. And, Je- and Samuel says, well, go get him. Let's find out. Is he the one? And of course, David comes in and, and God says, yes, that's who is our new king. Samuel anoints him as king. Now, he doesn't actually become king of the land for a time. It's very interesting. After he's anointed king, what does he do? He, he goes back and tends to the sheep. He goes back and, and goes back to what he was doing. He, he goes and, and lives for the sheep. Very interesting analogy there. Uh, but that's what he did. He was the son of Jesse. Jesse had a ton of sheep, so he became a shepherd. David became a shepherd. He was not a hireling. He was a true shepherd. But sometimes the flock would get so big or circumstances would dictate, hey, I need to bring somebody on to help care for the sheep. That would be somebody you would hire, a hireling, to care for the sheep. So what would happen? This is a guy just out for a paycheck, you know, just just collecting his Friday beer money so that he can hang out and have a good time on the weekend. Well, if they, you know, were out caring for the sheep and, and suddenly a wolf would come along, he'd be like, hey, my sheep. <laughs> I don't, I don't, you know, I'm just here for the paycheck. I heard the shepherd on the other side of the mountains looking for a guy too. I'm leaving. I'm out. 
And so that's what a hireling would do. Why? Because he's not invested. It's not his sheep. He doesn't really care. And so he just says, when danger comes, I'll find somewhere else to work. Thank you very much. And Jesus now is distinguishing between the role of a shepherd, one who is invested, one who has a love for those sheep, one who's willing to lay down his life for those sheep. That's what he's comparing. Jesus is saying, that's who I am. Not a hireling, not somebody that's just here for the moment. But if danger comes, I'm out. As he said in Psalm 23, we read uh, last week, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. The shepherd walks with the sheep through even the valley of the shadow of death. No matter what the cost, the shepherd is willing. And Jesus says, even if it costs me my life, and it will, and it does. He says again in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. So he's stating again, I'm the good shepherd. And then he goes on to say, I know my sheep. As he went into the common fold um, there in town, they would have thousands of sheep. The good shepherd would know, hey, that one's mine, and that one's mine, and that one's mine, and that one's mine, and that one's mine. I know my sheep. Jesus is saying, I know as I look out over, uh, over a crowd, I know who my sheep are. And then he also says the reciprocal, not only do I know my sheep, but he, the sheep know me. And we read about that last week, right? Uh, the shepherd or the sheep would know the voice of the shepherd as he went into the common fold, as there were thousands of sheep there, the, the shepherd would make his distinct call and his sheep would respond. His sheep would answer, Hey, that's my shepherd. I'm out. We'll see you guys later. And they would head out to pasture. He knows us and we know him. That's the relationship. He says in verse 15, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, we see Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, just simply saying, I know what's coming. The cross is coming. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then an interesting verse. Well, let's pause there for a second. I want a rabbit trail for just a second. We'll pick up in 16 here in a minute. And just just talk as a family. And if this is your first time or if this is, um, just bear with me for a minute if, if you're a guest here. Speaking to our faith family. Um, it's interesting to note that the word that's used here for shepherd can also be translated and is translated in the New Testament as pastor. And so uh, the, the, the term shepherd is, is, is also, you know, translated pastor. And so I view what I do here as a, as a faith family, uh, as you guys have, have said, this is who we want to pastor us. I, I get my idea that I'm, I'm a shepherd. Now I want to say I'm not the shepherd. <laughs> he is the shepherd. And I like that. I like uh, an under-shepherd. I'll go with that. Okay. And God has put me in this position. It's been about nine months since Pastor Dave passed away. Maybe a little bit longer now. And um, no, a little bit less, actually. And I just want to talk to you about how God has changed my heart from being a hireling to becoming a shepherd. I've been with this church for 16 years. I've, I've been a pastor in this church for over over 10, somewhere 11, 12, I'm not real sure. But for the longest time, I came to this church, and I love this church, and, and um, I love doing what we do, and I love playing music, 
but it was I had the mindset of a hireling. And I did I collect a paycheck? Yes, I collected a paycheck. Was that all it was about? No, not necessarily. I enjoyed doing the music. But but since Dave has passed away, what God has birthed in me is this idea that I'm not a hireling anymore. I'm a shepherd. And God has, has created in my heart a love, a genuine love for our church and you people. And, and I say it almost every week, and I hope you hear it as I close the service. I love you guys. And that's not something of me. That's not something that I'm trying to create in and of myself. That's something God has placed in my heart to say, I want to shepherd you guys, and I want to work with you guys, and I want that relationship to be more than just a hireling. I, I find in my heart the, the desire to defend and the desire to minister to and the desire to care and to love for you guys. And that's growing inside of me. And so as we've been praying about different things, we um, made a decision to take a step of faith. And... Um, See that the the that uh, allow. I'm trying to figure out how to word it. Just take that step to demonstrate. I'm the shepherd of this church, and to care and love in this church. And so, um, on Monday or on Tuesday, I gave my notice at work, and uh, feel like the Lord would lead us, lead me in that to come here full time. Um. And to take that step of faith and to say, I want my primary responsibility to be these people and for my church. And so leaving the garage door industry um, and uh, setting those things aside uh, to make my primary responsibility here and to minister and to be caring and open for you guys, available as you guys see the need or, or, or what have you. And so I'm excited about that. It is a step of faith that we are, my family and I are taking. We're trusting that the Lord is going to use you guys to provide for our family, to meet our needs. And, and you know what, just like Tom said at the announcement, when we, when we set foot in this building, we weren't sure that we were going to be able to afford the rent. We were taking a huge increase in our rent and God has provided every step of the way. We've never been late. We've never missed a mortgage payment. Everything came together perfectly. And so as, as the Lord has laid this on our heart to say, Chris, it's time to take that step. We trust that God is going to provide in that as well. And so I didn't give my normal or the normal two week notice. Um, I actually gave two months. <laughs> and so mid April is when I will be leaving. Um, they had, my bosses had some vacations already established and I didn't want them to have to change their plans. So I gave them plenty of notice for, and so just, I'm looking forward to taking that step. And, uh, um, people asked, are you still going to do garage doors? Uh, yeah, I'll still do them. <laughs> if you have a garage door issue, if you have a problem, you can call me. I still want to, I'll keep my tools. I enjoy working with my hands. I'll still come out. But my primary responsibility uh, will be to serve this body as your shepherd. And so I'm, I'm very excited about that. And uh, so, yeah, just a matter of business there. And uh, praise the Lord for that. Amen? Amen? Okay. All right. Yeah. God is good. Verse 16. 
Interesting what he says here. And other sheep which I have, or other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who is he speaking of? Well, if you're in tune or you kind of understand, he's speaking about us, Gentiles. Uh, the Gentiles. Right, exactly. And, and because what he's saying is uh, he's speaking to the Jews as he's speaking this, and he recognizes that many of them are going to reject, them, reject Jesus as the Messiah. And God's actually going to use that. He's going to use the rejection of Israel for their Messiah to reach a greater plan. The Jews thought that their Messiah was coming to save them. And yes, they were. Uh, Yes, he was, but it was more than that. That wasn't the limit of the plan. God had a bigger plan. He said, no, I want to reach the world. I want to reach even the Gentiles. And so I'm going to use this rejection that the Jews are going to have for the Messiah to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what happens. As you look through the book of Acts, as you read the Pauline epistles, the persecution of the church is what spreads the gospel out into the Gentile world. That allows you and me to be here today. This flock that he's speaking of is us. I don't know if anybody in this room is of Jewish descent. If so, you're in the minority. The majority of us are Gentiles. And so had it not been for the rejection of the Messiah by the Jewish people, we wouldn't be here today. And so Jesus is proclaiming, he's saying, I've got more people to reach. I've got a greater story. Uh, I have sheep that are not yet of this fold. I must bring them in as well. And then he says, and we will have one flock. One flock, one shepherd. He's going to bring us all together in one fold, one flock. Well, if you look at the church today, does it look like one flock? Not in so many words. Is Jesus the one that's divided us? No, we are. And that's why there is Calvary Chapel, and that's why there's the First Baptist Church down the street and the Second Baptist Church next to it and the Third Baptist Church around the corner and the 27th Baptist Church on the other side of town. And that's why there's Methodists, and that's why there's Pentecostals, and that's why there's Episcopalians and Presbyterians. And that's why it's not because Jesus said, I want all these divisions. He said there'll be one flock and one shepherd. We've done that. You know what? It's not a new problem. It's not a new issue. Uh, the Corinthian church experienced it. As you read through the book of First Corinthians, that was one of the issues that Paul had to address. There was division in the body. They, say, you know, they were saying, oh, I'm of Apollos, he's my teacher. Or I'm of Cephas, he's my teacher. I'm of Paul, I'm of Jesus. And there was division even back then. Is it entirely a bad thing? No, not necessarily. Because I know that different churches minister to different people in different ways. And so to have some diversity is good. It's when diversity becomes division that we have issue. It's when we say as Calvary Chapel, we're better than this church. Or the Methodists say, well, we're better than this church. That's where the issue comes. Diversity is okay in the body of Christ because people are ministered to in different ways. I gave this example. My dad will pop in here to church every once in a while. He doesn't come very often. Why? He grew up in the Methodist church. He's used to three hymns, and usually on the third hymn, you didn't sing all four verses. You sang, you know, verse one, two, and four, or something like that. A 15-minute message, and you were out before the basketball came came on at noon. That's church to him. And you know what? That God ministers to him through that style of church. And so when he comes here and he hears contemporary worship and drums and 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 that kind of stuff, it doesn't minister to him in that way. 
when he hears his son preaching for 45 minutes, he tends to nod off. And that's okay. I get it. I don't, we don't, Calvary Chapel doesn't minister to him in the way that the church that he grew up in. And so that's why there's diversity and that's why there's issue or that's why there's, there's differences. In that case, it's a good thing. But when it causes division, that's where we, we take issue. One flock, the bride of Christ. Jesus isn't married to a bunch of different brides. We, the, the body, we are the bride of Christ. One bride, one flock, one shepherd, one groomsman or uh, husband. Therefore, verse 17, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Those are some important verses. We need to pause there to take a look at those. What exactly is Jesus saying? As he's going to the cross, as he's preparing for the end of his ministry on earth, he knows that the cross is coming. He says, ain't nobody taking this from me. This is what I have chosen to do. I lay down my life. It's not a surprise. Oh, all of a sudden we've captured Jesus. Let's kill him. Oh, I didn't know that was coming. No, this has been the plan since Genesis chapter 3. This has been the plan, well, since before that, but that's when we're first made aware of it. As, as God is laying out the curses and he speaks to the serpent, he says, you'll be cursed. You gotta, your, your legs, your belly will rub on the ground. We're getting rid of your legs, that kind of thing. And there's a day coming when the seed of woman, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. That means already in place in Genesis chapter three is redemption through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is not some surprise. They didn't catch Jesus and God the Father off guard, and now they're going to make the best of it. This has been the plan from all along. That's what he says. This has been commanded to me. That's what he means by the end of the verse. And he willfully gives up his life. I lay it down is what he says. Isn't that what he said on the cross? After the price has been paid, after after uh, redemption has been made, he cries out, it is finished, meaning it's been paid in full. The price has been completely paid. And then he gave up his life. No one took it from him. He gave up his life. He gave up the ghost. That's where we get the expression. He gave up his life. But that's not the end of it. And I think we kind of get a, we understand that uh, to some degree. But that's not all it says there. It also says, and I have the power to take it up again. Jesus, people will ask, who raised Jesus from the dead? Our answer is right there. He did. He is the one that's defeated sin and death. He is the one who resurrected himself to life. People would be mistaken when they say, well, the Father raised him. No, he did. Jesus did. I have the power to take it up again. And in that power is the defeat of death. In that power is the defeat of sin. And we can say, like Paul would say, oh, death, where is thy sting? Because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. We're studying 1 Corinthians on Wednesday nights. If you could make it this Wednesday night, I would encourage you to, because we're in chapter 15 right now, and we're discussing the doctrine of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we have no Christianity. The doctrine of resurrection is essential to Christianity. We need to understand it. We need to know it. And, and so 
we talked about it this past Wednesday. We're going to continue it in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus laid down his life, but he also defeated sin and death, raised himself up. He has the power of the resurrection. He has become our first fruits, is what uh, 1 Corinthians would say. And so in his resurrection, we have eternal life. It says in 19, therefore there was a division among the Jews because of these sayings. He's he's just speaking the truth and everybody's like, what what do we do with him? There's there's division. And really, isn't that what he said he'd do? Jesus said, I've come to divide. And so he's fulfilling his own prophecy. 20 said, and many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so some of them are starting to figure it out. Some of the the veil of their heart is starting to be removed. Their ears are starting to be unstopped. And they're saying, no, there's no way this guy could have a demon. He healed a man who was blind from birth. Can a demon do that? No. And so it's starting to make sense to them. And there's this division happening. Now what's interesting, John doesn't tell us, in between verse 21 and verse 22, two months happen. We don't know what happens in those two months, but at the end of verse 21, it's kind of the end of the story there at the Feast of Dedication, or I'm sorry, the the Feast of Tabernacles in October. They were at the Feast of Tabernacles, um, and, and that's where he says, I'm the light of the world, and all those things. And that's where this idea ends. And now we're going to fast forward two months to the Feast of Dedication, and we'll talk about that. Read verse 22. Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. All right, so we went from October to now winter. What was the Feast of Dedication? Well, it was interesting. Um, it occurred on December 25th. Hmm. And uh, uh, it was a celebration of the work that the Maccabees had done in 164 BC when they booted out, um, I'm going to mess up his name, Antiochus Epiphanes. Right, Dave? Is that how you say it? Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, the people always said, if you don't know how to say something, just say it firmly and continue on. So <laughs> I just blew that. Antiochus Epiphanes, he, he was a, the Syrian leader who went into the temple, desecrated the temple. The Maccabees said enough of this in 164 BC. They booted him out. They, they re, uh, cleansed the temple. And so now they celebrated every December 25th this dedication of the temple, or Feast of Dedication, also known as the Feast of Lights. And they would have this time to celebrate. And so that's where they are now, two months later. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, it says in 23, this beautiful setting. Solomon's porch was just gorgeous. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. <laughs> so he's walking along. I imagine Jesus just, you know, enjoying the temple, looking at the porch, and all of a sudden the Jews... <laughs> It's around him, you know, <laughs> and they're standing there and it's just like, uh, hi guys, good to see you again. I took a couple months off and, uh, and we're just going to pick up where we left off, aren't we? And it, just tell us plainly, are you the Christ? <sighs> really? I think he's been pretty plain. <laughs> I think he's been pretty plain the whole time. And that's what he's going to say. Jesus answered them and said, I told you. (laughs) And you do not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep, as I said to you. So you, you want to pick up where we left off? Fine. I've already told you I am the Christ. I've already made the claim that I am deity. I've already said that I'm the Son of God. You don't hear me because you're not mine. And he's speaking to their blindness and he's speaking to their deafness. They neither see, they neither hear. And that's the issue. They refuse to remove the veil of their hearts and hear what the Savior is saying. The works I do, even, they don't see them. They bear witness. They don't hear the voice of the shepherd. They don't know that voice. They don't know his call. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. How do you know if you're a sheep of the shepherd? You follow the shepherd. Remember, in those days, it's not the shepherd didn't drive the sheep. He didn't push them in the direction. He led them. He would go out in front of them. He would lead them and speak. And as he spoke, the sheep would hear the voice and they would follow that voice. And that's what he says. They, my sheep know my voice. I know them. They follow me. And verse 28, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Ah, what a great verse. What comfort that if we understand that verse, nothing can snatch us from the hand of our Savior. We should find great peace in that, great hope in that. Nothing can take us from Him. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Are we going to shed this body at some point? Should the, should the Lord tarry in His return? Yes, we will. But we will not perish. We're going to talk about that. Really, Jesus, as we, as we go Wednesday night into 15, rather, Paul is going to answer the question, why then, if, if we have eternal life and we're not going to perish, why then do Christians die? We're going to talk about what that means and, and how we are shedding this body. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Do you find peace in that? Is that comforting to you? It is to me. We sing that song in Christ alone and in the fourth verse. Um, um, uh, what is it? No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. destiny. And then no power of hell. No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I stand. I love that line and it echoes exactly what Jesus is saying. Once he's got a hold of you, guess what? He's not letting go. He's not going to let go. He holds you in the palm of his hand. Nothing can take you from that. In him we are secure says in 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. I love that. He's saying, you know what? Dad's got him and dad's greater than everybody because he's God and nothing's going to take him from his hand. He's given them to me. Nothing's going to take him from my hand as well. I and the father are one. Jesus once again makes a claim to deity. 
I'm sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. Though they would claim that Jesus never made the claim that He was deity. It's right there. It's right there. I and the Father are one. And then verse 31. Then Jews took up the stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. Which of these do you stone? For which of these works do you stone me? I love that. <laughs> He's like, they, He... I am the father of one. They bend down. They find the closest stone they can find. We're going to kill you. And he's like, oh, oh. I, uh, um, I made the blind man see. I made the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. I made him walk. Um, the deaf here, uh, the dead are raised. Uh, which one are you? Um, what am I dying for here? At least tell me before you stone me. What am I, what's, what's going on? Which good work are you going to stone me for? <laughs> the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Oh, I wish they would see. I wish they would remove the veil, the, the veil from their heart that they could see that exactly what they're doing. As they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, they're committing blasphemy. The stones that they carry in their hands, they're worthy of receiving themselves because they're calling the Son of God something that He's not. Was He a man? Yes, He's a man. He's 100% man, but He's also 100% God. He, they said, you make yourself to be God. No, He didn't. He made it, God was who he, he is, who He's been. Sorry. <laughs> he's God. He's God. <laughs> Get in front of my, work, my mind here. <laughs> so... I like the words of C.S. Lewis. Made a good point. As you look at the life of Jesus, you can only come to one of three conclusions. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And as you look at the, at the life of Jesus, that's the only conclusion that you can come up with because He proclaims to be the Son of God. So either He is or He isn't. If He isn't, then He's, he's a liar. Why would we follow Him? People say, well, Jesus was good, uh, just a good teacher. If He was just a good teacher, then if that's all He was and He isn't the Son of God, then He's not a good teacher because He's lied to us. So He's either a liar or the dude's just crazy. And he's making up these illusions of grandeur that he's, he's portraying on himself that he is the Son of God. Or everything he said is true. And he is the Lord. And he is worthy of our lives. Yes. Yes. Now it's interesting where Jesus goes. Bear with me. Jesus answered them and said, uh, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, quote, You are gods, small g there. If He called them gods, to whom the Word of God came, and the Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him, capital H, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? What's He talking about? Well, right over in your margin, just so you can have the kind of chain of where He's going, He he quotes a, a Scripture written in the law. Is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. What's He quoting? He's quoting Psalm 82.6. You can write that off to the side. Psalm 82.6. 
And then what Psalm 82, 6 is talking about is actually what's found in Exodus chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. So write that underneath Psalm 82, 6, Exodus 22, 8 and 9. What is it talking about? Well, if you go back and look at it, it's at the time of the judges where men were elevated to rule over the people and, and, and given the position to make judgments for the people. Now, what's interesting, the word that's translated as judge there in Exodus and in Psalm, or in, in Exodus is the same word that's translated gods in Psalm 82. It's the word Elohim. And so he, he says that this word can be translated one of two ways that either a judge or God, small g. And so they, they make the claim here. What was God doing? He was elevating people to render judgment over the you know over the land at the time. Uh, I've got an issue with my neighbor. We have a, 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 a this is where the line of the property is. This is where he says it is. This is where I say it is. We need somebody to render judgment, and so they believe that these men were elevated by God to rule and to reign to make judgment. They would go to the judge, the God and say, which is it? And they believe that God would then speak to them at that point, the judges, and say, this is the way it's supposed to be, and then they would render judgment. What is Jesus saying with all of this as he's quoting this old Scripture? Well, Scripture cannot be broken. He says that. It is the truth. If God calls the judges God, Jesus... And Jesus is the judge of the world, right? We understand that. He, he, he's coming again to judge the quick and the dead. The, the uh, um, Apostles' Creed would say, Jesus is the judge of the world, ergo, he is God. And so he's using this idea to say, because I'm a, you see me as a man, he called men, he elevated position to the men, or, or elevated men to the position of God, uh, small g God. How can we say that this is wrong is what he's saying. Now, so then the question would be, as Jesus uses that, as we look at it today, does that mean you and I are gods, small g? No. <laughs> Sorry, Mormons, you're wrong. <laughs> That's not the case at all. We are not. That was reserved as a title for those people in that day judging over Israel. And so, but he's just using it to say, this is what the scripture would say. And then he goes on to say in verse 37, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. He's like, look, if I'm not about the father's business, then don't believe me. If, if this doesn't look right, then don't believe me. But if I'm doing the work of the father, if you can't come to believe what I say, at least believe what I do. The works that are demonstrating the father and I are, are, are together. Uh, that you may believe that the Father is in me and I in Him. The works are a testimony to the fact that He is the Son of God. So 39, therefore, they sought, they sought again to seize Him, but He escaped out of their hand. Why? Because it's not the right time. This isn't, we're still about three and a half months out. It's not time for him to go yet. He has a set day. Uh, he's getting ready to ride in on the donkey. It hasn't happened yet. And so it's not time. So he escapes their hand. Verse 40, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. 
As much as the Jews are wanting to pick up stones to get rid of this guy, and when it speaks of the Jews there, it's speaking of the religious leaders of the Jewish uh, people, yet the ministry that Jesus is performing is being effective. Why? Because it says many are believing in him. So he escapes out of their hands. He, he, he runs to the other side, not running away, but he goes to the other side where the, of the Jordan where John was baptizing. He camps out there for a little while. And then he's going to come back to Jerusalem seven days before he's crucified. And he's going to ride in on a donkey, and that's going to be the time where he can be strong on the cross, pay the price, and give up his life. And so that's where we're headed. I don't think anybody's surprised by that. But that's So right now he's, he's pulled away for the last couple months to this other location. One thing I want to note just before we close up, looking there again at verse 41, they came to him and said, John performed no sign. I want us to grab a hold of that just for a second. This is speaking of John the Baptist. John performed no sign. What does Jesus say about John? He was the greatest man born of woman. And he performed no sign. We just went through... 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. The issue with the Corinthian church is they're replacing far too great an emphasis on the, the, the gifts of the Spirit. Yeah. The greatest man born of woman performed no signs. So I don't, wanna, I don't want my life to place too much emphasis on the, on the gifts of the Spirit. Do I believe that if God wants me to have a, a miracle happen, that He can use me to do that? Yes, I believe that. But that's not where my... That's not where my mission lies. I want to be more like John, who performed no sign. It didn't matter to him. All he did was point people to Jesus. That's what I want my life to be about. And if he chooses to use a miracle or use me to perform a miracle of some sort, so be it. But that's not where the emphasis lies. And that's not where it should be for any of us. Oh, I have the gift of tongues. I'm better than you. Or I've got the gift of prophecy. Or I've got the gift of knowledge. Okay, praise the Lord. Are you using it to edify the body? Great, that's wonderful. That's the way we should use the gifts. But they're not, they're not our resume. John, the greatest woman born or greatest man born of woman, performed no sign. All he did was spend his life pointing people to Jesus. May we be about that as well. Amen? Let's stand, let's close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for your humble submission to the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to to perform the perfect plan, the redeeming plan of God the Father. And though you were sat in the garden and said, if there be a way for this cup to pass, we see your submission in the words, yet not my will, but yours be done. Lord, may our hearts be that as well. May our hearts be surrendered like yours to do your will, to have your way in us. Use us as you see fit. If it be in the performing of miracles, if it be in the signs, then so be it. But God, I just pray as a church, we would point more people to you. That eyes would be open. That hearts would be changed. That lives would be given to you in praise and adoration. 
I'm so grateful for these people. I'm so grateful for this body. I look forward to what you have in store for us in the future. Continue to use us and guide us and direct us as you see fit until you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.